0: yes please uh, mute everybody's except of course uh, speakers okay um, <clears throat> so uh, Mr. listen you will share your presentation you yes. have the right yes. Yes, yes, I'll share the presentation while you're making the presentation. Let me know when you're ready to start, then I will. we uh, ready. I'm ready. I think we're ready. I think uh, a lot of people have joined, and we've started streaming live on YouTube as well. There's several people on YouTube. Ambassador, should we start? Uh, yeah? Go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. So I'll, I'll take a. A couple of minutes, and then I'll hand it over to you, Ambassador. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. A really warm welcome to all of you to ICREA's third webinar in its G20 at 2023 series. I must make an announcement here that when we started this webinar series in May earlier this year, we called it the G20 at 2022 series, but given what has happened in 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 Riyadh just a, a week ago that we have shifted our presidency to 2023. We have decided obviously to rename our platform or series, the G20 at 2023 series. The first webinar in the series was held in May and it was fittingly inaugurated and the first lecture was delivered by our Sherpa uh, Sri Suresh Prabhuji. The second was delivered by Amar Bhattacharya and this, the third, is going to be delivered by Mr. V. Srinivas, digital Secretary, Government of India, Department of Administrative Reforms and Public Grievances, on G20, the Riyadh Summit, 2020. Uh, he will be introduced by Ambassador Raghavan, and I have the privilege of introducing Ambassador Raghavan to all of you. The seminar or the webinar will be chaired by Ambassador Raghavan. You know, is the Director General. Of ICWA or the Indian Council of World Affairs. It is our privilege at ICREA that we are able to host Mr. Srinivas and Ambassador Raghavan to this important discussion on the Saudi G20 presidency. Uh, just a few words about ICREA G20 work, and then I'll hand it over to Ambassador Raghavan. ICREA's work around G20 issues is more than a decade old, and we are proud to have created a platform for discourse on critical issues affecting India and the global economy, such as climate change, sustainability inclusion, health, public goods, trade and protectionism, to name a few. We have held 12 annual G20 conferences, produced three books and over 50 academic papers on issues around India's engagement with the G20 uh, since 2009. We are currently engaged with the Ministry of Finance studying India's engagement in the finance and Sherpa tracks and the evolution of the finance and Sherpa tracks in the G20, among several other subjects. This seminar is a part of the intense engagement of ITER around the subject of G20. As I said, Ambassador Raghavan needs no introduction, but just a few words, if you permit me. He is a scholar, uh, as I will just point out in a minute, uh, and a former Foreign Service Officer, having served as High Commissioner To Singapore and Pakistan. He holds a PhD degree from JNU and is an important intellectual voice on India's relations with its neighbors. He lectures and writes on India's diplomatic history with its India's extended neighborhood and is the author of three books. His book, Attendant Lords, Bairam Khan, Abdul Rahim, Courtiers and Poets in Mughal India, was awarded the Muhammad. Habib Memorial Prize by the Indian History Congress. He has written two other books: "The People Next Door," "The Curious History of India's Relations with Pakistan," and "History Men." Jagunath Sarkar, GSR Design, Raghubir Singh, uh, India's Quest for uh, the Quest for India's Fast. He assumed charge of the Director General of ICWA in July 2018. These words and a very warm welcome to all of you, especially to Mr. V. Srinivas and to Ambassador Raghavan. It is my privilege to hand over the proceedings to Ambassador. Thank you
1: so much. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kadhurya. Thank you. And thank you also, Ikriya, for having invited me to participate in this uh, discussion on the Riyadh Summit of the G20. Uh, and it's a great pleasure uh, and privilege that we have uh, Mr. Srinivas to talk about these uh, issues. Uh, to my mind, Mr. Srinivas is well, uh, very well placed to discuss uh, this particular theme because of the background and experience uh, he has on this and related uh, uh, subjects. Uh, he has spent many years in dealing with uh, public finance and economic issues, both at the state level uh, as also at the level of the union government as a senior IAS uh, officer. Uh, In the past, he was uh, private secretary to the finance minister, uh, amongst other charges in the union government that he has held, uh, as also in his home state of uh, Rajasthan. Uh, But uh, Mr. Srinivas combines this uh, domestic perspective and domestic experience uh, with a considerable amount of international experience also he has been in the ministry of external affairs as private secretary to the external affairs uh, minister and thereafter served mm-hmm. in the international monetary mm-hmm. fund mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. his reflections on the current trajectory of the g20 mm-hmm. given the circumstances of global crisis that the last summit uh, took place in mm-hmm. will be mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. yoga uh, mat yoga mat May I request you to mute your mic please? Thank you. Uh, So given the circumstances of global crisis uh, in which uh, the last G20 summit in Riyadh took place, I think his reflections and analysis will be particularly uh, interesting. As all of you are aware, Prime Minister Modi had in fact uh, termed the current situation as the biggest challenge the world faces since World War II. In many ways, G20 itself is a child of crisis. That defining moment uh, was that of its birth during the global financial crisis. How effective it has been as a platform uh, remains an open question and depends very much on your point of view. During the global financial crisis, the question remained whether on balance the action it took and the actions it recommended address the real economy or just the financial uh, sector. The situation today in many ways is even more difficult uh, given the general weaknesses and erosion of multilateralism and also the growing cynicism about multilateral platforms and multilateral institutions. In many ways, the questions that were posed to the IMF uh, during the and after the global financial crisis of why it could not anticipate it more effectively. Similar questions have been addressed to the WHO in the current uh, context. Uh, in a more uh, general background, the question of uh, state limitation or state weaknesses uh, in the world today is becoming more evident. Uh, alongside this general erosion of uh, multilateralism, which has been commented upon a great deal. The state weakness or state limitation is most evident uh, in certain fields, uh, such as uh, climate change, biodiversity, and most recently, uh, of course, public health. Now each of these issues also figured very prominently uh, in the uh, Riyadh uh, summit, Uh, And certainly the details of that summit are something which are of great relevance to all of us, quite apart from uh, the optical character. The optics I think was captured to a great extent by President uh, Trump referring to play golf during some sessions rather than attending the summit. But quite apart from the optics, I think the the substance of the summit uh, is of great importance uh, to us given the fact that we will be a host Uh, not too far away, in 2023. So to discuss all these issues, uh, it's a great uh, pleasure to uh, welcome uh, V. Srinivas, and uh, I would now request him to make his uh, presentation, uh, after which we will have some time for questions and discussions. Uh, Thank you, and Srinivas, over to you.
2: Thank you, sir. I, at the outset, I am grateful to Dr. Rajit Kathuriya, the CEO of ICREER, for inviting me to speak at the G20 series talks being conducted by the Indian Council for Research on International Economic Relations. On this occasion, I pay my homage to late Dr. Isharjaj Alwalia, the former chairman of the Board of Governors of ICREER, for her yeoman services to institution building of the ICREER. I'm extremely grateful to Ambassador TCA Raghavan, the Director General Indian Council of World Affairs, my mentor, friend and guide for accepting my request to chair today's session. Ambassador Raghavan and I served in the external affairs and the finance minister's offices from 2001 to 2003. Uh, India last held the presidency of G20 and we were in the finance minister's office at that point of time. And it was largely a finance ministers and central bank governors forum. In 2002, the plenary session lasted for half a day and the bilateral meetings lasted for half a day, with Governor Bimal Jalan leading the discussion sessions. In my years at the International Monetary Fund, I do recall the Australian Alternate Executive Director, Mr. John Murray, mentioning that the G7 had resolved to have a more inclusive body uh, with broader representation for addressing the world's financial challenges. The G20, which comprises of all the world's major economies, has 19 member countries and the European Union and has been at the forefront of battling financial crisis. The global financial crisis of 2008 to 10, the Eurozone crisis of 2010, and the entire range of crisis responses like accommodative monetary policy stance, fiscal stimulus, debt and deposit guarantees, capital injection, asset purchases, currency swaps, they were all derived from the G20 discussions. One can say that as the designated Forum for International Economic Cooperation, the G20 has formulated an agenda for a strong, sustainable, and balanced growth, sustained the international financial and regulatory system, and reformed the mandate, mission, and governance of the IMF. It also deliberated on energy, security, climate change, strengthened and supported the most vulnerable countries, and placed quality jobs at the heart of the recovery. The G20 established the Financial Stability Board in its efforts for strengthening financial regulation and was at the forefront of shifting 5% quota shares in the IMF to dynamic emerging market economies and developing countries from overrepresented countries. The G20's agenda has diversified to include climate change, energy, skill development, science and technology, agriculture, and labor. Today, it represents the world's facet of multilateralism. The ICRIR's seminal work on G20 has been truly phenomenal. Ten or uh, twelve annual international conferences on G20, important book research publications, 20 years of G20 from global cooperation to building consensus, working papers on the anti-corruption agenda of G20, COVID-19 data localization uh, are some of the most recent publications. I last spoke on the G20 at the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library in 2018 in the run-up to the Buenos Aires Summit meeting with Shakti Gandhi Das chairing the uh, session. It was a speech titled, G20, A Decade in Multilateralism, examining the years 2008-18. to 18. The subject also features as a chapter in my book, India's Relations with the International Monetary Fund, 25 Years in Perspective, which I had pursued with an ICWA fellowship. In 2020, as Director General National Center for Good Governance, I had the opportunity to engage with about 48 countries, 19 countries of Asia, 26 countries of Africa, uh, some countries of Europe and Australia on the subject good governance practices in a pandemic and the discussions largely focused on the subjects of debt relief, health sector preparedness, education challenges, COVID-19 testing and and, uh, digital governance, reinforcing of international cooperation. I closely followed the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank in October 2020, uh, where the specific focus was on Africa's economic response to COVID-19. Today's talk on G20 is a continuation of my ongoing work in the subject. The G20 Riyadh summit was one of the most eagerly awaited multilateral discussions of the year. During the year, government stepped in to address the pandemic crisis, rolling out fiscal stimulus packages to protect jobs, issuing rules to slow the spread of the disease and investing in markets. It was also a year that witnessed the most rapid spread of digital technology in education, healthcare and governance. Along with the COVID-19 pandemic, the world grappled with the debt pandemic. The appealing goal in future is to return to normalcy with an economy that is inclusive and sustainable, providing digital access to all, offering universal health care, ensuring availability of COVID vaccine to all, low carbon emissions, and improved global governance. The G20 Riyadh communique addressed many of these challenges. A lot more remains to be done. One of the big issues for deliberation as rightly pointed out by Ambassador Raghun is, have global institutions predicted the massive pandemic crisis in a timely manner? The challenge for global governance that arose in 2009 was also when the IMF surveillance did not emphasize the global financial crisis. But then the fund reformed itself with perceived wisdom as an organization that will predict crises in major countries, even handedness of surveillance, formulate technical papers as an institution Uh, it would be a good institution for lending to smaller countries. The COVID-19 pandemic is likely to transform the global governance institutions in the coming years. With these opening remarks, let me share my presentation on the subject G20, the Riyadh Summit. The G20 Riyadh summit held on November 21, 22 was a virtual summit. And it was the first time the G20 was meeting in its annual leaders meeting was held on a virtual basis. Of course, the extraordinary leaders meeting was also a virtual meeting that was held on March 30th, 2020. So this is a picture of all the leaders as also all the participating global institutions in it. You can see the WHO, the International Monetary Fund, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank Group, as also the ILO participating in it. In addition to the United Nations, than European Commission and 19 member countries. Yes, uh, as I said, I examined the impact of the pandemic on Africa. And this was how grim the situation looked. The pandemic can push something like 26 million people in sub-Saharan Africa into extreme poverty in 2020. And up to 39 billion people if downside risks to growth materialize. People in Kenya were reported to be cooking less frequently. People in Uganda said they cannot sustain even one day of quarantine, reflecting the high dependence of people working in the informal sector. The pandemic is of such a magnitude that it is likely to wipe out 10 years of progress in development. GDP is projected to contract severely, and per capita GDP could be back to 2010 levels. There is a massive financing gap, almost 44 billion for Africa alone, and uh, in spite of the number of initiatives, uh, the slowdown is being witnessed in most of the major economies. In fact, uh, almost all the G20 economies are going to register negative growth except China, and uh, many countries in Africa are witnessing a sharp slowdown. Uh, South Africa is declining at 8%, Nigeria at 5.4%, Angola at 4%, and many of them oil economies where commodity prices have fallen. The IMF Managing Director, uh, Kristalina Georgieva said, it's the long ascent, a journey that will be difficult, uneven, uncertain, and prone to setbacks. The recovery is not going to be a simple one because there is a multiplicity of challenges that the global community faces. The run-up to the leaders' meetings, there were a number of uh, ministerial meetings that led to it, and uh, normally a leaders' meeting is preceded by about 10 ministerial meetings. But the G20 of uh, Riyadh summit was preceded by no less than 25 G20 ministerial declarations, communiques, and statements. Seven meetings of the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors were held in February, March, April, July, September, October, and November. The trade and investment ministers met twice and, thrice in March, May, and September. The health ministers met twice by themselves and one meeting with the finance ministers. The education ministers met twice. The energy, agriculture, tourism, environment, uh, labor and employment digital economy ministers met in April and also in October and November. And we also had the extraordinary leaders meeting in March. The only time when such a flurry of meetings took place was uh, the global financial crisis when it struck in 2008-9 when the leaders met both in Washington DC, Pittsburgh and also again in London. So uh, the kind number of meetings, the quantum of uh, multilateral engagement in the run up to the Riyadh summit was simply astounding. This was what the G20 Leaders Summit decided in March 2020. They resolved to fight the pandemic, to address the financing gaps in WHO strategic preparedness and formulate a response plan. They said, we'll safeguard the global economy by injecting $5 trillion in terms of a targeted fiscal policy. We'll address international trade disputes so that uh, vital medical supplies are not disrupted, and enhance the global cooperation between the World Health Organization, the IMF, the World Bank Group, multilateral and regional development banks all coming together to fight the pandemic in a very systematic way. Let me take you through the G20 financial, the finance ministers and central bank governors because they were the ones who met most often. and. Uh, The economic response was quite significant. They said the first thing they announced was a debt service suspension initiative because there was tremendous stress on uh, uh, budgetary support that could be offered. And uh, the Financial Stability Board was called upon to monitor financial sector vulnerabilities. A common framework for uh, debt treatment beyond the DSSI was identified once uh, the first round of debt sustainability uh, suspension initiative was rolled out. They also supported IMF's $1 trillion lending capacity, and emergency response packages were adopted, not only by the World Bank, but also by most of the regional development banks. The IMF's international uh, assistance came in the form of the Catastrophe Containment and Relief Trust. 21 countries of sub-Saharan Africa were provided immediate debt service relief for six months. And then uh, 46 countries were provided benefits under the debt service suspension initiative amounting to $14 billion. A rapid financing instrument for healthcare as also for testing and uh, augmentation of uh, facilities was provided to 29 countries. Emergency response packages were approved uh, across the world. In October 2020, when the IMF met in its annual meetings, there was further extension of the debt service relief under the Catastrophe Containment Relief Trust. The Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust that uh, provides uh, subsidized financing for poor countries, for uh, heavily indebted poor countries of the world, expanded its loan resources. there was also a further extension of the debt service suspension initiative into 2021 wherein the repayment period was to be for three years with a one-year grace period so countries had about four years to make repayments. however despite a lot of international persuasion private creditors have not participated in the dssi the second big group that met was the health ministers And uh, the G20 Health Minister's meetings uh, launched uh, the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator Initiative. And this is a, if you see the WHO website, it's quite a fascinating tool in which uh, various countries are projected as to what is the bed capacity, how much is the testing being done, how much is the uh, transmission levels. And uh, it's a daily update uh, that is being pursued and almost on a real time basis. It also intensified the efforts for pandemic surveillance and uh, multilateral development banks were to strengthen financial support to access to COVID-19 tools. And there was an assessment report of the WHO on pandemic preparedness that has been widely circulated. Uh, The G20 health ministers also resolved that the universal health coverage schemes in developing countries would be financed through multilateral financing. The next major group that met was the education ministers. And the education ministers uh, uh, it has been an unprecedented year for education the kind of disruption that uh, education sector has witnessed has never been felt before there have been prolonged closure of educational institutions in fact uh, we've heard of uh, distance education but online education is far different from distance education. So uh, nations resolved to share best practices, experiences and lessons learned to ensure learning continuity. Further, there was also, they also stressed the need to address digital divides and inequities in terms of the learning opportunities. So there was an internet rich group of students and an internet poor group of students. So the G20 uh, said, we will try to address this kind of inequalities that set in an education. The other big group that met was the trade ministers. And the trade ministers decided that uh, uh, they would support the world trade and investment response to COVID-19. They had Uh, two types of approaches. One was the short-term measures uh, with regard to trade regulation, trade facilitation, logistics networks which needed to be opened up so that uh, inter-country transfer of uh, medical supplies could be facilitated. Then there was also the long-term measures with regard to tariff systems, with regard to multilateral trade systems, resilience in terms of global supply chains, and also to ensure that international investment is uh, uh, flows on a continuing basis. One of the key features that uh, in the last two, three years that the G20 has witnessed is the anti-corruption ministers meetings. And as an official working on governance practices, I was quite keen to understand uh, what was the big agenda that the G20 pursued in its anti-corruption strategy. And uh, one of the striking features was they were quite concerned about the corruption in covid-19 particularly with regard to procurement practices and the g20 they uh, issued a call for action on corruption and covid-19 and uh, there were several issues that have been flagged in the anti-corruption ministers' meeting, like the quantum of procurement, the transparency that is there in procurement, also the necessity of uh, pharmaceuticals that are being procured, uh, the enhancement of bed capacities. They also issued a good practices compendium on combating corruption. The Riyadh Initiative for enhancing international anti-corruption and law enforcement cooperation was a striking feature. And there was also, uh, the G20 said every country must criminalize bribery. And this was uh, also featured through international cooperation for asset recovery in case bribery has been proven. We've had uh, a a leaders summit every year and uh, Uh, The last five summits, I tried to lay down the path. We had the 2016 summit at Hangzhou, then the 2017 summit at Hamburg, followed by the 2018 summit at Buenos Aires and the 2019 summit at uh, Osaka. But none of these summits faced the quantum of uh, challenges that the current summit faced. And uh, while some of the strategies with regard to trade, with regard to uh, ensuring sustainability of global economic Growth, as also anti-corruption and climate change, do feature in the previous summits. The health sector challenges have made the 2020 summit quite unique. Let me take the key features of the G20 Riyadh Summit. The summit opened with uh, a state presidency statement by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who said that uh, the G20 was created to collectively fight the greatest challenge of the day. Uh, immediate measures were taken by G20 to fight the pandemic. They pledged more than 21 billion dollars to support immediate funding for the pandemic. Saudi Arabia alone contributed 500 million dollars and uh, they were working on uh, affordable and equitable access to vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostic tools. Further, extraordinary measures were taken to support the economies and people. $11 trillion were injected into the global economy. Initially, they started with a projection of $5 trillion. We noticed that by November, the number has amounted to almost $11 trillion. Extended social safety nets to protect jobs and incomes were pursued. Emergency support was offered to the most vulnerable countries. The Debt Service Suspension Initiative, $14 billion of debt relief was provided to vulnerable countries. $300 billion was mobilized through development banks, the IMF and the World Bank, which were working together with the G20. These are some of the Saudi presidency initiatives and are quite unique, because were not pursued before. One was an initiative to enhance access to pandemic tools. So under this initiative, the Saudi presidency tried to promote R&D and distribution of diagnostic tools, encourage and facilitate international funding for the pandemic and support the training of epidemiologists from all over the world. They also, of course, uh, the Riyadh initiative on the future of WTO was adopted, the empowerment of women and youth. This has been a feature in previous summits too, but there was greater emphasis through the Saudi presidency. And the G20 endorsed the circular carbon economy platform with the four-hours approach, which I will come to in the later slides. And one of the big features was the initiative to reduce land degradation, something like one billion hectares of land to be brought under the cloud again in, by 2030. And to safely managed fresh water was also pursued. The leader's statement, which is the communique of the G20, contained specific focus on uh, the pandemic. And uh, the first uh, sub-chapter of it dealt with rising to the challenge together. The second one dealt with building a resilient and long-lasting recovery. The third was ensuring inclusive recovery that tackles inequalities and then towards a sustainable future. So as you can see, the immediate uh, need was to rise to the challenge together and to build a resilient and long-lasting recovery. And thereafter came the inclusive recovery that addressed inequalities. So. In terms of rising to meet the challenge together, the G20 uh, at Riyadh reiterated the commitments of March 2020, that is, they would fight the pandemic together. And uh, it recognized extensive immunization as a global public good. It endorsed the action plan in terms of the DSSI and the common framework for debt treatment beyond the DSSI. So every country would get about four years uh, to repay their existing loans. The second one was, how do we build a resilient and long lasting recovery? To build a resilient and long lasting recovery, they identified nine sectors, health, trade, transport, international financial architecture, infrastructure investment, uh, financial sector issues, digital economy, international taxation, and anti-corruption. So if you see the biggest imprint that uh, has happened in this COVID period was the significant strengthening of digital infrastructure across the world. You see wonderful templates and apps coming up on the WHO portal. You can go to the IMF portal and see the DSSI that is being implemented where every country's debt levels have been moderated. Then you have the COVID-19 access uh, accelerator once again, projects uh, on a real-time basis how the health situation is progressing. So the digital economy has made significant strides in in this period. Let me take you through each of these uh, sectors. In terms of the health sector, the Saudi presidency said, we will initiate uh, discussions on the need to address gaps in health preparedness and also on establishing access to uh, pandemic tools. Now, these discussions will have to continue in the next presidency because it requires the financing of almost $25 billion. So far, the commitments are about $4 billion. In terms of trade and investment, the G20 has said we will support the WTO's investment response. And also, the Riyadh initiative on future of WTO was taken, and inclusive economic growth through participation of MSMEs, this has been a key feature of the Riyadh summit's communique. In terms of transportation and travel, they said they will remain committed to uh, global transportation routes and supply chains to remain open. The restrictive measures of COVID-19 would be targeted and transparent, and concrete ways would be ensured to mobilize movement of uh, people across countries. In terms of the international financial architecture, if you recall the 2008 global financial crisis, this was where the main significant changes were brought in. And once again, the G20 has said, strong financial global safety net with an adequately resourced IMF would be created. And they would continue to progress on the 16th general review of quotas, which they hope to complete by 2023. And uh, IMF was asked to prepare an analysis of external financing of low-income countries and and a reference framework for effective country platforms has been identified in terms of financial sector uh, as you would recall uh, the financial sector board was created in by the G20, and the Financial Stability Board was asked to continue to monitor the vulnerabilities. They also were to identify and undertake an evaluation of the too-big-to-fail reforms, the TBFT as what they've called it, too-big-to-fail reforms, TBTF, by 2021, and mobilizing of sustainable finance and strengthening of financial inclusion was to be pursued. In terms of the digital opportunities, uh, the G20 took note of the policy options to support digitalization of business models and securing affordable connectivity. And there were also examples of practices related to security in the digital economy. And there was a roadmap for a common framework for measuring the digital economy. International taxation was one aspect where they discussed and they felt that there has to be progress made in tax transparency standards, and also with regard to uh, the BEPS, that is the base erosion and profit sharing and strengthen the tax capacity of uh, developing countries at this period of time. I've already discussed the anti-corruption agenda and the G20 Riyadh summit gave a call to action on the anti-corruption agenda enhancing the international anti-corruption laws, as also building anti-corruption strategies, promoting public sector integrity, and promoting integrity in public-private partnerships. So they effectively endorsed a G20 anti-corruption accountability report. The 3rd subchapter of the communique is ensuring an inclusive recovery that tackles Inequalities, And here, they were uh, a group of sustainable development, access to opportunities, employment, women's empowerment, education, tourism, migration, and forced displacement. These were the aspects that the G20 covered. And with regard to sustainable development, they said that COVID-19 response and recovery in developing countries has also a guidelines on quality infrastructure. And the action plan for the 2030 agenda for sustainable development would continue to be maintained. And the G20 initiative for supporting industrialization of Africa, which was featured in the last summit meeting, would also continue along with the G20 Africa Partnership Compact. In terms of uh, uh, addressing inequalities, they said that they would try to enhance the access to opportunities for all, particularly financial inclusion for youth, women, and uh, uh, SMEs. And further, there was to work on the Global Partnership for Financial Inclusion. In terms of labor markets and employment, the impact of the pandemic on labor markets was widely seen and policy options for adopting social protection was given high focus. And uh, they've also said for continued monitoring of labor markets and the impact of COVID-19 on global labor markets was to be pursued very closely through the ILO. The pandemic has enhanced the gender inequality significantly, and this features in the communique too, uh, it was to ensure that the pandemic The G20 said we would ensure to take measures that the pandemic does not widen gender inequalities and further step up efforts to reduce the gap in labor force participation between men and women by 25 percent. And the Saudi presidency initiative was uh, called Empower, Empowerment and progression of Women's Economic Representation. That was what was to be pursued. In education, they said that uh, actions taken to mitigate the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on education, and there was also an importance of continuity of education in terms of prices, that's the communique has reiterated the emphasis on education. In tourism, they said that we facilitate travel and tourism and also inclusive community development through tourism and endorse the action plan for safe and seamless travel and set up a G20 tourism working group because this was one sector that was very adversely hit. Migration and forced displacement also features heavily and shared actions to mitigate the impact of the pandemic on refugees, migrants, and displaced people were seeing. And it noted the annual international migration and forced displacement trends and the policy reports by the OECD has been taken in. Sustainable future was the last subchapter of the communique and this has been a feature of the G20 for the last several years and uh, one initiative was the G20 initiative on clean cooking and energy access and the energy security market stability cooperation. The energy transitions were, were to realize the 3E plus S, which is energy security, economic efficiency, environment, and safety. Now, the 3E plus S approach was adopted in the Osaka summit also, and it features in the Buenos Aires summit too. It endorsed the circular carbon economy with uh, four Rs, and uh, they reiterated uh, continuation of the discussions for presentation environmental challenges through the COP19, the COP21, which is scheduled to be held in Glasgow, and the COP15 to be held in Kunming in the coming months. Further, the g 20 statement said they would continue to invest in agriculture and food systems and would continue the dialogue on water to share the best practices and promote innovation and in technologies, particularly on integrated water management practices. The next meetings are to be held at Italy in 2021, Indonesia in 22, India in 23, and Brazil in 24. So it's a massive agenda that uh, awaits the Italian presidency in the coming years. There were also side events that were held along with the Riyadh summit, and uh, the pandemic preparedness and response uh, was one of these. Uh, first side events that was held on November 21, and it uh, identified that the pandemic has infected more than 54 million people, claimed over 1 million lives worldwide. And uh, the G20 members contributed 21 billion to support health systems and also, of course, 14 billion to debt relief to developing countries. The Saudi presidency led the launch of the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator. And this is quite an uh, interesting website, which is available on the WHO's webpage. The second is they led the global coronavirus pledging event, in which you can see on the, uh, the uh, COVID tools accelerator, how many companies and private agencies have come forward to undertake this pledge. This is a statement of Ngozi Okunjo-Avila, the Nobel laureate who's currently heading the Covid tools accelerator platform. She said that the virus is winning only through adequate financing for a global exit strategy like access to COVID-19 tools accelerator, the ACTA, can economic vitality be restored at home and catastrophe in the poorest countries be averted. A commitment by G20 leaders to invest about 4.6 billion will fill the ACT's immediate funding gap. It will also save lives and lay the groundwork for mass procurement and delivery of tools, that is tests, treatments, and vaccines around the world. Another commitment of 24 billion is needed in 2021 for the COVID-19 tools globally. So it's a massive initiative, uh, almost about $25 billion to be mobilized in the next year. The Pandemic Preparedness and Response Session received global support. The President of France said the only effective response to the pandemic will be a coordinated global one based on solidarity. The Chancellor of Germany said a global challenge, which is what the pandemic undoubtedly is, can only be overcome with global effort. The President of South Africa said we are pleased that there appears to be consensus in the G20 that access to an effective COVID vaccine should be universal. It should also be fair and equitable. The President of South Korea said we must work together more closely in solidarity to defeat the coronavirus. I hope the efforts of the G20 will inspire the world. The second uh, side event was with regard to safeguarding the planet, and the Saudi presidency promoted the circular carbon economy. The four-hours approach was to reduce, reuse, recycle, and remove, which was a holistic approach for emissions. And they also set an ambitious goal of uh, sustaining about 1 billion hectares of degraded land by 2040. The renewables, including wind and solar energy, were to generate 50% of the Saudi electricity by 2030. So it's a very ambitious goal in safeguarding the planet that they've set for themselves. The Indian Prime Minister spoke in this uh, session and he said that uh, climate change must be fought not in silos, but in an integrated and holistic way. We should do so with the spirit of cooperation and collaboration. The American president said we must preserve the majesty of God's creation. Together we can protect our environment. And the uh, Prime Minister of Japan said global environmental issues are urgent challenges and Japan will take the initiative. The closing remarks were given by the President, uh, by the King of uh, Saudi Arabia, King Salman, who said that the G20 has upheld the commitment to work together to rise to the challenge of the COVID pandemic to safeguard lives and livelihoods. G20 has also succeeded in sending the message of hope and reassurance to all people around the world by adopting the communique. He further said that the G20's joint and individual efforts will be critical in overcoming the global challenge. And future challenges were empowering people, safeguarding planet, and shaping new frontiers. The roadmap ahead lies in global resilience and This is a quote from the European Commission President who summed up the G20 summit as a global alliance in development and distribution of vaccines, protecting climate and environment, covering the digital economy, governing the digital economy and technology, and upholding international institutions and governance. The big step is overhauling the health systems, resilient health systems, vigilant, responsive, flexible, and equitable. There's also a demand for vaccine finance which entails huge amount of financing. Inequality exists not only within countries but also between countries and there are chances of vaccine nationalism. So it's very important that the G20's communique which has reiterated uh, its commitment for equitable access to COVID-19 is uniformly implemented. Improved global governance has been a feature. So uh, bolstering the efforts of the United Nations and multilateral institutions, the IMF in fact has approved a record number of loans in a short period of time with low conditionality.
1: The WHO
2: has to be developed as the world's rapid response force on global health and enhancing the effectiveness of the WTO. This is what remains on the agenda as we move forward and my last slide is the debt pandemic that comes with the health pandemic there has been no success so far in getting the private lenders to follow the dssi and borrowing needs particularly for financial sector have skyrocketed and india has called uh, through the finance minister in the imf meetings more transparency on debt data and debt contracts and one instrument that was used in 2009 which is yet to be used is the issue of uh, 318 billion dollars of uh, SDRs that were used to shift uh, and allocate resources to more countries, so that is yet to be used in this crisis. So this is the presentation I had on the G20 Riyadh summit, thank you very much for uh, listening to me and I hand it back to uh, Ambassador Rakman. thank
1: you. Thank you very much uh, Srinivas for an excellent presentation and for a very, very useful overview Uh, of the very wide canvas uh, which the G20 uh, has uh, drawn, uh, not just for global recovery, but also on a range of other issues which uh, carry over from previous uh, summits. But of course, uh, as you mentioned, uh, recovery, uh, the long ascent, the multiplicity of uh, challenges, all these really are the immediate and most pressing context uh, which there was uh, before uh, the G20. Now I'm sure there'll be many uh, questions, but before we turn to those, I had one, uh, two points really of uh, clarification really, which I wanted to uh, seek from you. First was about the debt service suspension. And in your last slide, you partially answered my uh, question about how effective is this instrument uh, likely uh, to be because uh, uh, immediately after the communique was issued there were a number of uh, very critical uh, uh, comments that in fact this was one area where a stronger uh, declaratory statement was uh, anticipated but it did not uh, uh, come and possibly that itself was uh, the outcome of differing uh, views uh, within the uh, within the uh, g20 but I would very much like to hear a little uh, little bit more about uh, this. The second was on this question of uh, the access to the vaccine. Uh, Again, the declaratory statements are uh, quite strong about universal access, uh, equity, uh, and so on. But nevertheless, uh, the proof of this is going to lie in the uh, the pudding. And I think uh, there there are numerous uh, issues, not least of which are, Uh, IPR uh, issues. So how do you see uh, progress on this uh, front uh, uh, over the next year? Because this is not something which is going to be addressed in a matter of weeks or months. It is going to be over a longer longer period of time, uh, especially if uh, uh, the vaccine has to be used comprehensively and in a sustainable way.
2: Thank you, sir. Uh, the first is the DSSI, and the DSSI is uh, is is uh, currently featuring on a website. If you see at the IMF, you find uh, there are countries which are facing high debt stress, there are countries which are facing moderate debt stress, and uh, roughly about 46 of the 73 eligible countries have uh, opted to take the DSSI. Uh, the there are two components of it one is of course immediate debt service suspension which uh, was provided for a period from may to december and then it has been further extended and uh, the extension has been uh, to a period of 3 years and they've also said that there will be one year for a moratorium in which you need not pay any any of the initiatives so far the private lenders have not joined the dssi and it is not really uh, clear as to who owes Uh, which private lender how much and at what uh, rates of interest or how much uh, is to be repaid. And it's simply uh, unless the private lenders join the DSSI, the quantum of uh, debt stress that uh, individual countries are facing would not be clear. Right now, the international institutions have been asked to work out a package and uh, uh, the governments have offered a moratorium. So it has been... uh, taken up by some countries, but there's still a large number of countries which have yet to join the DSSI. And uh, this happened even with the poverty reduction and growth facility, when the hipic financing was waved off in 2006, and also subsequently in the 2010 years. And it took several years for countries to come on board to identify their debt stress, and it could not be done in one shot. It took time for uh, uh, debt levels to be worked out and restructured. So it's an ongoing process, and I presume over the next one year, the multilateral institutions would, uh, in consultation with individual country authorities, and also with uh, several of the big private lenders work out a moratorium which, is, uh, which, is, uh, in, which will ensure sustainability across the global economies. Right now what we see are the African economies which are under tremendous uh, debt stress uh, that are being seen. The second issue is with regard to the access to vaccine. Now, access to vaccine is a big challenge with regard to how pharmaceutical companies will submit uh, their uh, IPRs and how IPRs should be given by individual countries. And uh, there is no clarity on this as yet. And uh, uh, the WHO would be the arbitrary mechan- uh, authority with regard to uh, ensuring uh, the uniformity and equity of access of uh, the COVID-19 vaccine as in when it is discovered, not only across countries, but even within a country as to how it would be done, would represent a massive challenge. And uh, some clarity perhaps would emerge once uh, successful trials and a vaccine are diagnosed by early next year. And I presume that the health ministers would be meeting very soon once the uh, vaccine is uh, identified and uh, successfully notified the health ministers would meet in the coming months to take a pol- policy decision with regard to this subject.
1: Thank you. Now, this question which has come in is also quite uh, quite wide-ranging, and I'll read it out. It says, this time, unlike during the 2007- 2008 crisis, there is a lack of coordinated fiscal and monetary stimulus measures across the G20. Some are following fiscal stimulus, and some are following monetary stimulus, depending on their own financial situation. Will the global economy revive like it did in 2010 with this lack of coordination and synchronization? It's a
2: very interesting question, sir. And, uh, Unlike in uh, 2009-10, it's not very clear what member countries can actually offer in terms of uh, a fiscal stimulus at this point of time. Uh, The debt moratorium has been placed on the table. And uh, in terms of debt relief, we're still not clear as to how much can be uh, brought to the table. And what we notice is that there is a slowdown across the global economies. The global governance in 2009 was enhanced and strengthened significantly, particularly in the terms of the IMF's monitoring, and the first uh, step that was taken was even-handedness of fund surveillance for larger economies. There was also financial sector regulation that was put in place. the Financial Stability Board was asked to pursue a monitoring agenda of large, systemically important uh, financial sector agencies. Spillover reports were prepared as to if an economy collapses, how quickly uh, can the uh, global community combat that fire? So that uh, in terms of spillovers, m- not most major countries do not get hit. And uh, this time, uh, the response has been... Uh, slightly i should say incoherent in that that uh, the, the there are countries which are pushing for monetary policy actions their countries some countries are pushing for fiscal policy actions i think right now what we see is the immediate pain needs to be eased. And uh, thereafter, a more systematic global approach would be evolved uh, once the immediate pain of fighting the pandemic in terms of health sector is addressed. But uh, uh, the G20 has uh, risen to the occasion in uh, the two previous crises. And we can be sure that the global community would come together again as a multilateralist body to fight the pandemic that that is what i feel uh, having studied the uh, last 12 years of uh, g20s communiques
1: well that may be so but i'm left with the thought that uh, you know there is a wider geopolitics which is also going to affect uh, uh, the g20 uh, this summit was meant to be re- saudi arabia's landmark event uh, but some of the fire at least was stolen because it was a virtual uh, Gathering and not a real one. Uh, there was also the, uh, the, 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 perhaps not unexpected, nevertheless unexpected to some extent, that you had a lame duck uh, U.S. Uh, president. Uh, plus, uh, there are larger issues about uh, U.S.-China relations, the future of uh, transatlantic relations, which to some extent have possibly been. Uh, There have been some reassurances, especially on the transatlantic uh, alliance front because of uh, the forthcoming uh, Biden presidency. But my general point is that there is this wider geopolitics, which uh, appears to be uh, affecting the G20 much more this time than during the global financial uh, uh, crisis, and which really uh, is the argument of those who talk about the erosion of uh, multilateralism uh, and how this will affect uh, the G20 uh, also. Uh, So this really is a a question to which there are no answers, but nevertheless, these points are are there. Uh, Let me check what is the next question, which has uh, popped up. No, it's the same. Rajat, would you like to also comment on... uh, Mr. Srinivas's presentation? Yes, no, I think, uh, as you said, Ambassador Dagoban, this was a very wide-ranging
0: presentation and a great summary of what, what happened. So thank you, uh, Mr. Srinivas. I actually wanted to sort of uh, want you to, to address a point that the ambassador has just raised, uh, which is, as you emphasized in your presentation also, uh, that you know the institutional erosion that happened in in the recent past. And the fact that the G20 has had on its agenda issues relating to trade, relating to protectionism, it has had issues relating to climate change on the agenda. And, And given what has happened in the recent past in the larger geopolitics, given the trade tensions between China and the US, there was a little bit of a setback to multilateralism, to climate change, to trade. And now, uh, do you think with the Italian presidency coming up in Europe and do you think the election of Biden, there is hope for uh, some optimism, although cautious optimism that there could be revival. Although I think, you know, to get to a two degree world, we have to work much harder and everybody has to work much harder to get to revival of WTO. All of us have to work much harder. But do you think there is hope uh, with the Biden presidency?
2: It's an American-led world order, and uh, most of the institutions are American-led. And uh, multilateralism can only thrive uh, when uh, the United States plays a leading role with it. It's very difficult to find an alternate uh, world order with uh, dollar dominance at such levels, particularly when a crisis of this magnitude is staring the world. So uh, one thing that uh, the Biden presidency does offer is uh, the re-entry of the United States into the climate agreements, and they would come back with the Paris Agreement. The second one that they've offered would be, I think the greater multilateralism, particularly the kind of criticism that the WHO face from the United States that may come down to some extent, and uh, they would support uh, the WHO's efforts in terms of pandemic surveillance. The third one, of course, is the international financial architecture and how quickly the 16th review of quotas could be completed and how the quotas would look at. Uh, They still have this big weapon of uh, fresh issue of uh, SDRs, but uh, the last time it took a huge amount of time for, the uh, 15th review of quotas to be completed and uh, we'll have to see how soon uh, the review of quotas in the IMF can be completed in terms of uh, a restructuring of the global financial architecture is to be taken up. But uh, definitely there is uh, optimism for multilateralism in the coming years. We have a new presidency coming in. Uh, President Trump was extremely critical of uh, both the WHO as also the uh, climate uh, engagement and, uh, you know, the the promises to be slightly different, but uh, with an American led world order, unless the United States plays a key role in leading negotiations, it may not be uh, possible to take multilateralism forward.
0: Yeah. uh, Ambassador, if you permit me one more uh, question, uh, or at least a a comment, is one of the interesting things that you mentioned, Mr. Srinivas, was that the pandemic's uh, impact on women, uh, especially uh, on on the employment of women, and we see that in India as well. And it's interesting that this comment has come from from the Saudi presidency, and that there's sort of greater uh, uh, forces that will try and work together to restore, uh, you know, gender empowerment. If you sort of look at India and look at the impact uh, that the pandemic has had on the Indian labor market and disproportionately as we see the impact has been felt uh, on women, and we see that you know the, the ability of women or, or at least the divide, the digital divide affecting women, the informality affecting women, the skills, the education levels affecting women in India so what do you think uh, you know is can india's response uh, to gender empire, i know this is a wide ranging question but do you have any sir, ideas on how we should address this challenge given that the impact of the pandemic of course the impact of other you know calamities and shocks also are felt disproportionately given uh, the informal nature uh, of Employment in India disproportionately. So, do you have any ideas on how we can begin to to address these issues? at least begin to put a framework in place such that we can address these issues in a more coherent way.
2: We've been examining the uh, the governance practices in response to the pandemic, and uh, I've had the opportunity to interact with more than 300 uh, odd district collectors across uh, India on how they looked at the challenges with regard to employment, with regard to the governance practices. And one big success story that emanated from the Indian response to the pandemic was, of course, uh, the digital response. And uh, we found that uh, the digital response was extremely strong. Online education was available even in the most remotest parts of the country. Vidya Varathy app was a very successful initiative. Also, with regard to providing essential food supplies, there was a lot of success through the uh, Pradhan Mantri, Garib Kalyan Yojana, wherein which immediate food relief was provided. And, uh, but loss of jobs has been an issue. And uh, there have been, uh, uh, there have been uh, Atmanirbhar Bharat packages that have been announced. And uh, we hope as the economic recovery sustains, uh, the job markets can resume. Uh, as soon as possible with recovery happening. But uh, in terms of immediate uh, success stories, one can uh, definitely say that the Indian response with regard to education, even with regard to providing immediate healthcare and using digital technology, providing uh, food supplies was quite successful. I've seen young officers putting uh, service above self and standing out in this times of pandemic to ensure that uh, the poorest of the poor are served uh, not only for uh, food, but also for health care and also for education. In fact, some of them even reached out to private companies like Swiggy and Zomato to ensure that uh, Uh, essential supplies were maintained. They also went to cremation grounds to see that uh, essential protocols with regard to cremations were uh, sustained. And I can name several officers who have uh, uh, stood above the cause of duty and uh, in the front lines as COVID warriors to ensure that uh, the Indian response to the pandemic was uh, a sustained one.
1: Thank you. There are some more questions, Srinivas, and let me read the first of them. This has been partially already addressed, uh, but the question is, the fractures in multilateralism and schisms in the transatlantic alliance have impacted the coherence of the G20's collective response to COVID. Given that the upcoming presidency of Italy would, would bring these problems to the center stage, how do you see the G20 in 2021 unfolding?
2: It's a difficult path ahead. There are no easy answers. The pandemic is still raging. A record number of uh, more than 100,000 cases are being recorded every day in the United States for the past 27 days and we still have not found an effective answer to how economic revival or quote p- patterns will happen. It is, uh, we're looking at a debt pandemic also. So the Italian presidency is going to be an extremely challenging one. And uh, there are no easy solutions or silver bullets at this point of time. One has to fi- first identify a vaccine and then ensure that the... Uh, COVID tools are adequately prepared and the WHO's pandemic preparedness response is more stronger. Otherwise, there are no immediate solutions to the challenge. And the Italian presidency is going to be a very tough one to bring together diverse groups to the table to discuss uh, complex challenges with regard to the health pandemic, with regard to the debt pandemic, as also with regard to the international governance architecture.
1: Well, this really brings up the next question and it almost follows from your uh, answer. And The question is, would the uh, Italian uh, presidency uh, have a priorities that are dominated by European Eurozone priorities, especially with regard to climate change, human rights, digital uh, divide, etc. Or do you think, I suppose, the questioner means that they would make an effort to have a more global perspective uh, on their uh, presidency? Uh, every presidency brings to the table their own
2: domestic priorities. Uh, and uh, that we have seen in the last five uh, uh, leaders' summits. But uh, right now the single big priority is the pandemic. And how does the pandemic, uh, how, will, how will the pandemic be stopped? And uh, the, the Italian presidency will continue to grapple with the challenges of fighting the pandemic. The second is, of course, uh, ensuring equitable recovery and uh, vaccine uh, uh, financing. These are areas that the Italian presidency would have to take up. Of course, uh, they would be bringing to the table some of their issues on their domestic agenda with regard to climate change, perhaps even Brexit, uh, as also how the European Union would uh, cope with uh, the aftermath of Brexit and how economic recovery uh, would uh, look like in In the European Union, that would be brought on the table too.
1: Dr. Pratik of uh, Icrier, his question is, do you think it's time for a Development Consensus 2.0, like the one that was put forward at the Seoul Summit after the global financial uh, crisis? Uh, And if so, what is the role that India can play? well india india has been at the forefront of
2: multilateralism in fact uh, we were one of the first countries to permit export of paracetamol medical supplies to over 150 countries and uh, Uh, Indian democracy has always uh, placed very firm belief in multilateralism. Uh, The Prime Minister has also called for significant uh, restructuring of the WHO and strengthening of its pandemic surveillance. So India brings to the table uh, its democratic credentials, its uh, tremendous support for multilateral organizations as a founding member of both the Bretton Woods institutions, as also of a number of other uh, international financial architecture. So uh, India is the, at the forefront of this battle and uh, as the world's largest democracy, we bring tremendous strength and voice and credibility to G20. So uh, definitely an Indian voice would be well heard and well received on G20 fora in the coming years.
1: Thank you. Uh, well, we have two or three minutes uh, uh, left. So let me ask you one more uh, question And uh, again, it's half a comment, uh, which is really that uh, given the scale of uh, uh, the pandemic and the crisis it has brought about uh, in global affairs, uh, one would have expected a much greater impact on day-to-day developments. In fact, that has not uh, happened. Perhaps many people say it's not surprising. You can't expect the whole world to change uh, for, because of one uh, particular uh, factor. But the UN Security General's uh, uh, appeal right at the beginning, the early days of the uh, pandemic for a global ceasefire or ceasefires and different conflicts really did not have uh, much of an impact. Uh, uh, on the whole, uh, on the whole, uh, traditional geopolitics has continued. In many ways, uh, it has intensified. Uh, so a desecuritization of global agendas, which uh, in rational terms should have followed uh, a crisis of this uh, magnitude uh, has not uh, taken place. So your uh, presentation was very useful that obviously there is a great deal of thought going into this. And certainly the point about education is often missed as to what you stressed, that uh, how great a toll uh, this pandemic is going to take uh, uh, on education, because you're going to see virtually a whole uh, academic year uh, being sub uh, optimal. W- what is the thinking in the government about this, in India uh, specifically? Because there are digital divides, there are difficulties of technology uh, access, but at the same time, you have the prospect that. Uh, uh, students would not have attended classes physically uh, for the better part of a year, perhaps the whole year. Uh, wh- what is the thinking and how do we how do we go forward from here? It's, it's a very difficult time for
2: students. Uh, they're used to uh, living in a social environment, not meeting friends, staying at home for a year now. In fact, it, it's not been an easy time for them at all. And uh, Uh, I think government has now started classes 9 and 10 and 9 to 12 with uh, on voluntary basis can go on in some states universities have resumed uh, subject to willingness but at this point of time online education would be continuing along with uh, uh, the limited opening of uh, schools and colleges and unless there is a slowdown in the pandemic colleges and schools may not be fully operational. But I'll go back to Dr. Pratik's question. I do have the communique of the Seoul summit here and, uh, and it reads very well the way the Seoul action plan has been formulated. I'm sure Dr. Rajat knows it very well. The communique said cohesion and cooperation defined, in the, G- defined the G20 during the crisis. This allowed decisive policy action to help avert a second Great Depression. Now the challenge is to secure recovery and to create the growth and jobs the world needs. We all recognize that much needs to be done and the See all Action Plan is a step in the right direction." I think these words would continue to be applicable even today in that, that uh, the challenge is to secure recovery and also fight the pandemic. So. Uh, history repeats itself really in that that uh, the global challenges remain and the G20 has to step up in the coming year to take on this challenge.
1: Well we are almost out of time but Dr. Kathuri, I think we can take one more uh, uh, question if you if it's all right with That's you certainly ambassador there's one more question and I think it's this question uh, Srinivas, is that has the scope of the G20 expanded since the last time, Uh, India hosted the summit, which you referred to at the finance minister's level. If so, do you think it has contributed to the efficacy and speed of the G20 response to crisis today? And the second part of the question is a very interesting one, that how can India prepare for its presidency uh, of the G20 with this in mind? How can India better prepare for the presidency uh, with this in mind? The last uh, presidency
2: we held was in 2002. I do remember that day very well. The finance minister was in parliament in the morning and then in the afternoon, the bilateral started. And the next morning was the plenary session. And uh, by lunchtime, uh, this discussion was concluded. So uh, it it was essentially a finance minister's and central bank governor's meeting. Uh, Paul O'Neill was the treasury secretary who flew down from washington dc to for participation in the meetings and uh, dr jalan led the discussions at that point of time and uh... The communique was a very quick affair. It was adopted in about half an hour's discussion uh, after the plenary meetings when the lead speakers made their uh, presentations. Uh, but uh, thereafter, after 2008, uh, uh, after the global financial crisis, the G20 structure has changed. And as I pointed out this time, there were 25 meetings. If you compare it with the Osaka Leaders Summit, there were about 11 rounds of ministerial meetings. So. The 2021 presidency would also witness a huge number of ministerials before the summit meetings are held. 2023 is some distance away and it is difficult to predict what the agenda uh, that uh, the Indian presidency would take. But uh, the 2021 Italian presidency is going to be an extremely challenging one with the manner in the pandemic is unfolding at this point of time. I think uh, the focus is all on the immediate future rather than on a medium-term future uh, spreading up to 2023.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Srinivas. Thank you for an excellent uh, presentation. Uh, Certainly, I personally found it... uh, Uh, very, very educative because uh, it just uh, uh, illustrated beautifully the very wide canvas which the G20 uh, looks at. And uh, uh, you were right to emphasize that it has evolved far beyond a finance minister's meeting or a a financial agenda, although that remains an important part of uh, G20 discussions. Nevertheless, the broader... Desecuritization agenda, climate change, biodiversity, public health, education—these uh, are all uh, central uh, issues uh, for us to uh, address, uh, especially in terms of our own national uh, policies. Because the external environment is important, but is only facilitatory. The key challenges for a country like India uh, remain uh, domestic and. Uh, the extent to which uh, we are able to reorient our agendas to focus on issues of education, uh, public health, uh, uh, more equitable uh, access. Uh, These really will determine uh, how the economy will progress uh, in the short and medium uh, term. So thank you very much for a very, very interesting and engaging presentation. Uh, uh thank you Ikriya, and thank you dr katoria for for hosting this and sirwas finally may i suggest that uh, you wrote a very good book on india and the imf uh, uh, for the icwa and i would strongly urge you to write a book on india and the g20 probably beginning from the time you attended the finance ministers meeting up to 2023 because it will really add to uh, the body of knowledge and discussion about this very important global platform.
2: Thank you so much for the offer, sir. Always an inspiration to be with you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rajit, thank you. Thank
0: you, you. you, Mr. Srinivasan. Thank you Ambassador Raghavan for handling this beautifully. And I just wanted to echo what you said about the presentation. It was an excellent presentation, and we all learned uh, a lot. And just to say that we will come back with our fourth in the series of, of webinars uh, leading up to India's G20 at 2023, so please stay tuned in, thank you Mr Srinivas, thank you Ambassador Raghavan, thank you participants for always supporting our G20 efforts and thank you the ICREA team for helping organize this, see you soon, bye bye.